When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ever wonder what psychologists talk about over coffee? I'm Dr. Diana Hill, a clinical psychologist in Seaside, Santa Barbara, where I specialize in values and mindfulness-based approaches to therapy. And I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, a clinical psychologist in Mile High, Denver, Colorado, where I specialize in rehab and health psychology and acceptance and commitment therapy. And from coast to coast, I am Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University specializing in evidence-based relationship treatments. In this podcast, we bring psychology research into practice by discussing topics in psychology with experts in the field and with each other. You'll get a glimpse into the books we read, the research we think is interesting, and the ideas from psychology that we use to flourish in our own lives. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. Debbie, good to see you today. It's great to see you too. Um, So we have a really interesting episode today. We are planning to explore the psychology of politics and really trying to understand the political divide that we're seeing today a little bit better from basically a psychological perspective. Um, And before we get into it, I just have to say how timely this is. I feel like this is probably just generally timely like all the time, but I just happened to read a news article the other day that came out this week about a, I don't know if you saw this, Yael, but it was about a controversial art exhibit at, that they put up at the University of Kansas, which was created by a German artist named Josephine Mexepter. I don't know if I said that right. It depicts an American flag that has paint on it, like black paint, um, which she was trying to make a statement of sort of a call to unity to unite uh, this polarized country. And she's kind of ignited another debate, which we see all the time about free speech versus kind of disrespect toward a patriotic symbol. Um, But really, I think her point is hard to deny, which is that the United States is really deeply divided right now, and it seems to be getting worse. Um, So we're going to talk all about this today. But before we get into the content we've prepared, I thought Maybe we could talk about why we are so interested in the psychology of politics. And Yael, I know you you had the idea to do this episode. And so I'm curious if you could start by telling us why this topic is important to you. Yeah, sure. So I, I think I've long been interested in how people sort of get in, integrated into an in-group uh, of political opinion. And I think a part of why I've been so interested in this for so long is that I always kind of felt growing up that I was a little bit on the outside of being in an in-group just by virtue of the fact that I was raised by parents who had immigrated Im- immigrated from Israel and um, even more interesting on sort of the political background that I have is that my father was raised on a kibbutz in Israel, which is a socialist commune. So he was kind of raised in this very socialist way and then he came to America and adopted a more capitalist way of thinking and, and his political views um, really evolved over time. And then I was raised in the very progressive Bay Area. So I kind of had all these different political perspectives surrounding me. And so I was always kind of able to 
to see like, oh, there's lots of different groups and there's good people in each of them. Um, but as I grew older and became more involved in academic circles, um, I sort of became more dominantly surrounded by people that were of the liberal persuasion. And I just have this very vivid memory of as a postdoc sitting at a grand rounds lecture at Brown University, where I'm currently still um, in a position as a, an assistant professor. And it was in the midst of an election season, and the lecturer was making some comment that suggested explicitly that there was a, a sort of global we in that room that were all on the same liberal team and with the implicit assumption that anybody who um, belonged in that Grand Rounds Hall obviously saw the truth and, and sort of the right way to think. And I just remember having this very vivid thought that what, what would it be like if you had different views sitting in that hall and you were sort of um, given this very direct message that you were wrong and that you didn't really belong here? And, and might you be afraid to speak up in this environment of people that were otherwise, you know, welcoming and, and progressive and, and sort of friendly? And I thought about how ironic that was. So given that strong assumption that liberals are a more inviting group, um, that we were sort of very directly not being welcoming to other perspectives. And then the other way that I think about um, sort of the way that people get so divided in their thinking comes up very clinically. So in my private practice, I specialize in couples therapy, and I often see how polarized individuals within a couple become in their perspectives. Um, and I can see how stuck people get in, in sort of trying to prove to their partner that they're right and that their partner is wrong. And as a couples therapist, I um, have been trained in these entire therapies that are built on strategies to getting partners to be more open to their their partner's perspective so that they can come back together and move forward as a team as opposed to get stuck in this um, lockdown space. And so that's kind of a microcosm parallel to what I see happening on this larger political scale. So I just f find differences of opinion and how people get so stuck in those differences to be really fascinating. And I think it's so useful to think about how we can move past those stuck points to be more united so that we can make the kind of progress that seems important either, you know, as a couple or as a country. Yeah, interesting parallel there and an interesting history that you have coming into this. How about you? For me, yeah, for me, you know, yeah, I'm going to be honest. I feel like I'm a little less balanced than you in terms of this. Like I, I have pretty strong political opinions and I'm kind of struggling with understanding the other side. I feel like I've been kind of disturbed and angry about a number of political things going on lately. And I feel like that's even affected some of my relationships that make me, makes me feel sad. I feel like we ha I have a hard time understanding some people that are, you know, people I care about because their viewpoints are so different from mine. And I, I, I'm sure they feel the same way. They've shared some opinions in conversation and on social media that I find really hard to understand and kind of disturbing. And so basically I have some righteousness. I have some, a righteous mind, um, which we're going to talk about what that means soon. Um, and I'm really worried. I think I'm just very worried about the political divide. It seems like it's getting worse and worse. I don't know where we're headed as a country, but I feel like something has to change. Um, and I just, I want to understand this better and how other people can have such different opinions than mine. Um, people who I know are good people. And so I just, I feel like this material was a little bit hard for me in some ways to grapple with because it did force me to question some of my opinions and look at a different perspective. But I feel like that was sort of a good thing for me to do. And I think 
you know, even though I kind of think I'm right and I don't really want to change my mind, <laughs> um, I also feel like both sides of the political divide need to be willing to do this if we want to just mend this and heal as a nation and, you know, move past this extreme polarization. So it feels important to me, and it, but it also feels really like a big challenge. Yeah, I mean, I think it is a big challenge, and I certainly think you are not the only person with a righteous mind. I mean, one of the things that I think um, we'll talk about today is sort of why the human how the human brain is really wired in a way that really lends itself to developing a righteous mind. There's something very innate about it. So I don't think that it's unnatural or uncommon. And and certainly that's a part of why we've landed in the place that we have as a country. Um, And then the other thing that I'll just mention is, so I've been really interested in this um, literature for a little while and I had been like recommending it to friends and family members of mine who um, are more extreme on one side or the other. And that's generally the reaction that I always get, but I don't, you know, that kind of idea, I don't necessarily want to see the other side. You know, I, I, it makes me angry to think that I would have to make space for a different perspective when I think that that other perspective is so wrong. And so I think that you know, we need to sort of ask ourselves about the utility of that, because I think it is so hard to move away from being committed to our own belief systems and committed to really not being open to a different way of thinking. And we need to ask ourselves sort of what that does for us individually, and then what that does for us as a, as a country, as a nation. And certainly I mm-hmm. say that when I'm working with the couples, you know, if you get stuck in your own perspective, um, you know, what does that do to you? And then what does that do for your relationship? And, and you know, where, where do you want to go? And therefore, you know, what might be useful to change? So to kind of ask those questions that might open it up and, and make it a choice. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I think that um, we can think about the ways that we, the, the limitations that are inherent in staying staying stuck in our more righteous mind, um, and and I do think that there are some very obvious uh, problems that arise. You know, we become limited in the progress that we're able to make as a country because we can't sort of come together and create helpful structures or find ways to unite in causes that at least theoretically we all agree are important. And actually, in the previous uh, episode. Uh, Russell Colts, who was interviewed by Dr. Diana Hill, one of the other co-hosts, talked a lot about compassion and how our lack of compassion for one another uh, between these political groups divides and limits us as a country. And that's a part of why we're so stuck in our dividedness. And so, you know, we really can look to the psychological science to understand more of how this transpires and also what we can do about it. And so today we're going to spend some time talking about A wonderful book that was written by a social psychologist by the name of Jonathan Haidt, H-A-I-D-T. He's a professor of business ethics at the NYU Stern School of Business, and he's written several books. Um, One is The Happiness Hypothesis, and one that just came out is The Coddling of the American Mind. And we're today going to be talking about one of his books that was published in 2012 called The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. And in this book, uh, Dr. Haidt explores why good people are so divided using his research and background as a social psychologist who studies morality. Um, And he's done some really groundbreaking work in understanding sort of the different moral structures that are inherent in our society. Um, and, And so we'll talk a bit about that. Yeah, this, we both read this book and I have to say it was such an interesting book. It's a 
it's not a light read. It's pretty dense. And he goes into so many different areas. He talks, of course, about psychology research. And even within that, he draws from social psychology, developmental psychology, cognitive, psych, neuroscience. Um, but he also really draws from other fields like philosophy, sociology, cultural anthropology, evolutionary biology. And so he just, he comes up with these really interesting, um, just really interesting support for his ideas and arguments from like a huge variety of different areas. Um, so it's a really sort of intellectually rich read and got me thinking about a lot of different things. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's very dense, but he summarizes the book's intentions as um, saying, this book is about why it's so hard for us to get along. So I think in saying that, his intention with this book is to help conversations about morality, politics, and religion easier and more friendly to have, even among those with differing views. And of course, that's quite a tall order. Um, but, but I think that um, if you can be open to some of these ideas, it's, it's not impossible, far from. Yeah. And, you know, it really fit with my reasons for getting into this topic because he also, I have a quote from him. He says he wants to help people understand why half of the people in this country live in a different moral universe. So this is something that I'm just grappling with is trying to understand how other people can believe something different. Um, so I think that that's another tall order, but he does, he does a pretty good job of trying to get there. Yeah. So let's transition to starting to talk a little bit about some of the um, core themes in this book. So I'll, I'll start with um, the way that the that height defines righteousness. So righteousness um, just means uh, to be upright and virtuous, but self-righteous or self-righteousness means being convinced of one's own righteousness, especially in contrast with the actions and beliefs of others. And that often um, leads to being narrowly moralistic and intolerant. But what he emphasizes here, and, and what we had talked about briefly uh, a few minutes back, is that this really is the natural human condition. Um, Self-righteousness and righteousness allows humans to build cooperative groups even when they're not related to one another. So this is sort of based on an evolutionary idea that when we're in small groups of people that we're related to, it's not so challenging to be cooperative and to sort of uh, live in a way where we're not uh, concerned about our survival or concerned of you know somebody um, threatening us in some meaningful way. But as cooperative groups of individuals living together grow larger and, and they're not sort of our natural kin, it becomes a lot harder to uh, assume and have faith in that cooperative nature of the group cohesiveness. And so a shared morality is something that allows groups to get larger while still protecting us from, from threat. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he, he talks about different ways that our righteous minds can contribute to political divisions. And we'll get a little bit more into the into depth with this, but one of the areas that he gets into is how our emotional processes and reason work together and how that kind of lends itself to developing our own morality and also within social groups and how that helps us develop social groups. Yeah. So one of the, um, earlier arguments in his book, um, I think is just a fascinating um, way to think about the way that the human mind and our emotion and our reason work together. And I think it's sort of counterintuitive to what we usually assume is the case. So I think in, in our modern society, we assume that 
we think through an argument and come to a conclusion, and then our emotion would follow. So I may meet somebody and have an interaction and make some sort of a, a judgment or evaluation based on the interaction about that person, and then begin to feel a particular way toward that person. If it was a positive interaction where I learned something, I might sort of feel respectful, or if it was a negative interaction, I might feel um, anger towards that person. But what he talks about is that it actually happens in the opposite direction. So listen to this sentence and, and then just take a moment to reflect on it. So he, Height in this book, talks about intuitions come first and strategic reasoning comes second. In other words, we feel something to be true and only then do we generate a story that it can explain why it is true. Now, I think that this is sort of startling for most people um, because, again, we sort of assume the former, the, the opposite direction to be true, that, you know, we first uh, understand something and then develop a feeling about it. But he has all this really fascinating research that demonstrates really convincingly uh, why this is the case. Yeah. So, well, what I thought was so interesting in this book is that he would, he would use these little morality vignettes. Um, and other people have used these as well. Um, and so you, you're reading the book and they're kind of thrown in there and they're very, like, I feel like they're very startling in a way. Um, so I'll give you a couple of examples of them. So our listeners can just get a sense of some of them. So a family's dog dies, nobody knows about it. And they just bring the dog inside. This is their pet and they, they cook it and eat it for dinner. Okay, so that's that's one example. Another yeah. one is a woman who has a flag that she doesn't need anymore, you know, like an American flag. And so she cuts it up and uses it as a rag to clean the bathroom. Um, and then a couple more, um, a brother and a sister who have consensual sex with each other and it doesn't, nobody knows about it and it doesn't lead to any um, offspring or any other problems and they both agreed that it was a pleasant experience. Um, and then a man who has sex with a dead chicken. <laughs> so those are a few of the examples. Oh, and with that one also, no one knows about it. And, you know, then he eats the chicken. He doesn't waste it. Um, so these, I think, have a really kind of strong, like emotional, um, like really strong emotional reaction. And what he would do is then ask people their opinion about the morality of these things and then ask them why. And what he found is that sometimes people had this really strong sense of like, yeah, that's wrong. <laughs> but they had, a, they were at a loss for explaining why, because the explanations that they gave didn't quite make sense. And yet there was some really strong emotional sense that, yeah, this is just wrong. I don't know why, but it's wrong. Yeah, and I think what was so, if I could just sort of add one part that I thought was so cool about the research, the way that it was conducted, is that what would often happen is that the participant would try to sort of identify a natural victim in the story, but, there, but they were carefully designed, these moral vignettes, to not have a victim. And so the RA would say, no, you know, the dog wasn't harmed, or uh, both the brother and the sister were, you know, completely uh, consensual, and, and there was no danger of having a child because they used protection or the man who had sex with a dead chicken, the chicken was already dead, so nobody was harmed. But the emotional reaction to the stories was so powerful that people somehow would always try to look for a victim in the story to explain why their 
response of disgust or, or moral rage uh, was cropping up. Yeah. And another thing that they did that I think was really important is that they did some cross-cultural studies. So for instance, you know, most of these studies are done in a university setting with undergraduate students. Um, but they also did some of these kinds of studies in more of a working class suburb, and they'd compare those two. And they'd also compare Americans to people from Brazil and India, where um, there's some differences in cultural views of morality. And what was interesting to me that I read some of the ones um, that they would give in India, where they would find differences, and I'd read it and be like, it doesn't even compute to me almost. So it's it's sort of culturally embedded as well. What's going to elicit that feeling of disgust? Yeah, I think some of those cross-cultural studies are really important in sort of highlighting the way that, as you're pointing out, like our culture sort of directs our moral response and our sort of moral, our, our, our inherent, our internal moral framework for what's right and what's wrong. Yeah, exactly. And another tool that, that's been used to kind of illustrate this, this idea of how our sort of um, like emotional or automatic or even just non sort of rational processes can be really strongly at play here um, is the implicit associations test, which a lot of people have heard of this one because it's been used in our field for a while. And it was created originally by Tony Greenwald, Mazarin Banaji, and Brian Nozick. And what they do is they um, basically pair words that we categorize as positive and negative uh, with each other um, in order, and they, they basically measure like response time. So for example, we would really quickly pair the word sunshine and the word flowers. So we could like link those two words together really quickly. But if we try to pair words that are sort of incongruous, like love, cancer, we have it takes us longer because those don't like connect in our sort of implicit automatic associations. Um, so they they basically designed this test that you can do. But what they found and where this kind of gets more interesting is that they can study these kind of associations related to social groups. So for instance, relating them to faces of people from different racial groups, immigrants, obese people, elderly people. And what happens is that sometimes this test shows more of our implicit biases, and it can be really disturbing to people because sometimes their implicit attitudes are directly contradicting their explicit values. And I think a classic example of this is um, you might believe, have the belief, I'm not racist. I think most of us like to think that about ourselves. Um, But then you implicitly take longer to pair a positive word like good with a picture of a black person's face, which shows that on a more automatic level, you kind of are um, showing some racism. And so if anyone's interested, we can um, link to the website projectimplicit.org on our website, um, on the show notes for this episode. You can find that website and take the test yourself um, with the warning that you might be a little bit disturbed by some of your (laughs) own implicit attitudes. You might not want to know. Um, But it's been sort of interesting to see that, that those more automatic processes happen really quickly. Um, And to kind of tie this back to this episode, we can show implicit attitudes toward our political kind of opposition, right? So 
if we pair words like flower, positive words like that, and hate with words like welfare, taxes, Clinton, Bush, um, you can show this this difference. So, for instance, Clinton and sunshine are incongruous for conservatives. And so they've actually shown this, like they measure people's political stance and then they do this test and find that we have automatic intuitive reactions to political judgments. And we, what we might end up with is just a greater kind of internal sense that we're not even really aware of, of kind of liking and trusting people whose beliefs are in sync with our own. Right. Right. And so, so both of those um, lines of research that we just described, the moral vignettes and the implicit association test, really do um, support this idea that um, our automatic processes, our sort of gut intuition, our feeling um, is, is really primary and that the controlled processes, our reasoning, our strategic thinking follows. So um, Height in his book has this metaphor that he kind of carries throughout of this of the elephant and the rider. So the elephant is the big, powerful sort of gut intuition. It's the automatic processes, whereas the rider is the controlled processes, the reasoning why. And we might think that the rider is in control, but in fact, the elephant is so strong and so powerful. And if he wants to go left and the rider wants him to go right, he's going to go left and the rider will have to sort of go along. So while we like to think of the rider as being in control, it's actually more the case that the rider um, is more the servant to the moral emotion. The rider is the servant to the elephant. So our reasoning is more post hoc and as a result of our gut sense of emotion. Um, another metaphor that he uses that I think is also pretty compelling is that moral reasoning is more like a politician seeking election than a scientist seeking <laughs> out truth, whereas our um, strategic reasoning is more like the press secretary that has to work to justify whatever conclusion our um, moral reasoning has come to. So it's more like post hoc reasoning that our press sec secretary has to engage in. <laughs> I love that metaphor because I think that you see politicians and pundits do this all the time where yes. they're like doing mental gymnastics to yeah. try to make a point. And you're like, actually, if you think rationally about that, that makes no sense. And yet people will either buy into it or not, depending on their point of view. It's, it's kind of interesting to watch. Yeah, it really is. We also have this, yeah, we have this thing too called the confirmation bias, which basically means that we tend to look for evidence that confirms our own belief, beliefs. And we're really good at sort of challenging the, the sort of rationale behind other people's beliefs. Um, but we're not good at doing this about our own beliefs. Um, and I think we see this really with social media and these kind of one-sided cable news outlets and partisan pundits who are out there with these kind of extreme opinions, which is that we can really easily pretty much only look at our own viewpoint that, that aligns with what we already think and to be like, yeah, see, we have all this confirmation of what we believe. When, and it really actually takes some effort to look at other points of view. And it's usually pretty unpleasant to do that. And so I think we have this confirmation bias, which is that we're drawn toward information that just fits within our belief structure already. It feels better. So there was a study by another psychologist and researcher by the name of Drew Weston during the 2004 election. Um, and what he did was he put participants in an fMRI and flash statements from 
Kerry and from W uh, George W. Bush that were self-contradictory. So for each of these candidates, um, he flashed statements that sort of uh, were internally self-contradictory. And when the participants saw that the candidate that they did support had the inflammatory or contradictory statements, the part of the brain indicating negative emotion and punishment lit up not the reasoning parts of the brain. So where we might expect sort of this rational sort of trying to understand why there's these um, internally inconsistent statements, uh, we might think that our reasoning part of the brain would sort of be working hard to figure it out. What actually happened is that our emotional part lit up. And at the end of the session, participants were shown a slide restoring the confidence in their preferred candidate and there was a release of dopamine. So he kind of talks about this as like almost an addictive um, process where it feels so good to have that confirmation of what you already believe. It's so, um, it, it provides some relief and release. So there, there um, and Drew Weston, I believe, came out with a book called The Political Brain that I think um, goes into some detail about this line of research as well. Yeah, I mean, it's in our biology, which I think is so interesting um, and just shows, I think, how hard it is to change people's minds if we go for the level of, you know, the writer, that, that sort of reason. And I think you can see this when you try to have a hostile argument or to sort of present facts to the other side, it kind of gets us nowhere. Um, and what Height recommends in his book is that if you really want to work on changing someone's mind or even coming to like a consensus with someone, don't try to change their mind rationally through a hostile argument. That just, the elephant does not respect that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Instead, what the elephant can be persuaded by is, um, you know, someone who's affectionate, who has a de desire to please, who sort of can allow the elephant to slowly reflect over time, like a friendly conversation or willingness to kind of think deeply and question ourselves, even like an emotionally compelling story or movie or something like that might be more per persuasive. So I think a lot of times when we get into these arguments on social media or face to face, it's, you can have that feeling that this isn't doing any good. And that's kind of true. Like it's pretty rare for that to work. Yeah, I can't help but think of the couples that I work with because I think that that is so true that when one couple, come, one partner comes at the other and says, you know, I think you're just dead wrong and you've done it all um, incorrectly and, you know, you better buy into my side because you're just dead wrong, that the other partner kind of digs their heels in and gets defensive or attacks back and, and they sort of end up in a stalemate. And so what I do a lot of coaching on is to sort of say, you know, let's start from this with a team perspective that we, you know, might feel different things, but that we can give each other the benefit of the doubt that we both have good intentions and um, that we can, you know, respect one another and share, you know, have some shared values, even if there are some that are different. And I think that it, it kind of goes to what you're saying um, in terms of using that as a platform to have influence over one another's elephants. Well, kind of, switch to talking about another aspect um, of uh, the righteous mind that Haidt goes into some detail on. And uh, this is his uh, framework of morality. So 
we may sort of start uh, thinking about morality as a simple right or wrong, right? That there's kind of the, the right way to live and the right way to be a good person who has strong values and then a wrong way. But what he goes into a lot of detail to explain is that morality is far more complicated. So he starts off with a story of how um, he, in his own history, was um, very liberal. Um, but then during uh, the start of his academic career, he went to India um, to do some research. And he, he went there with preconceived notions of the importance and, and high value of autonomy and equality. Um, and with those values in mind, he sort of integrated himself into the Indian culture in this small village that he was living in. And with an attitude of, of respect and appreciation for differences that he, he sort of points out that it might he might not have had been able to do this if he had sort of come in as a visitor. But because he came in with an interest in studying the culture and really integrating within it, he sort of pushed himself to be really open-minded and, and to see all the different, you know, positives and negatives of the culture from the inside. And, and what he talks about is learning to see the beauty of duty, of respect for elders, of service to the group of negation of desire. So whereas he might have sort of come in with some judgment of some of the ways that, for example, the caste system existed, he ended up being able to see some of the um, benefits, some of the gifts that it brought. So he writes, and this is a quote from him, I had escaped from my prior partisan mindset, reject first, ask rhetorical questions later, and I began to think about liberal and conservative policies as manifestations of deeply conflicting but equally heartfelt visions of the good society. And so, you know, the conclusion that he comes to um, through at the start of his career is that moralism is pluralistic, meaning that it is rich and complex and multidimensional, and it therefore can't be reduced to, to you know, the simple um, axiom that we need to help people and not hurt them. Right. Yeah, I think he argues that it's more complicated than that. And when we reduce it to that, we lose a lot. Mm -hmm. He, one thing I thought was really interesting that Height writes about is that he, and he makes a really compelling case for this in the book, that we're sort of biologically wired to have and acquire some moral foundations. I mean, that's what binds us as groups. And, you know, that's helped us as a species a great deal to have these moral foundations but that the particular form of the matrix that we end up with will be shaped by our cultural context, by our personal learning history, et cetera. And so we humans are kind of uniquely positioned to have these kind of moral frameworks, but they can be, be very different. You know, someone in India versus someone here in the U.S., you know, and even within the U.S., people in different sides of the U.S., political divide than going on right now have sort of a different history and context around that. So what he says is that we're born to be righteous, but we have to learn what exactly people like us should be righteous about. And so there's sort of both this, this kind of biological predisposition for this, but then also the form of it will vary. Um, and so one thing he does is he goes into, he kind of adds to this moral foundations theory, which um, he kind of came up with these different domains of morality, and they, he, they basically, in the end, come up, they have six. Um, and so I'll kind of quickly go through these six different areas of these moral foundations. The first is care versus harm. And so this really underlies virtues like kindness, gentleness, um, 
wanting to care and protect children and having compassion. So that's the care, that's the first one. The second one is the value of fairness versus cheating. So kind of proportionality and justice, reciprocal relationship, relationships. And this is characteristic of emotions like anger, gratitude, and guilt. And you could see how when um, we, we tend to value fairness. The third is loyalty versus betrayal. And so things like patriotism, self-sacrifice for the group, um, this helps us form coalitions. And this kind of sense that it's all for one, one for all is just this loyalty and sort of group pride. And it can lead to the sense of pride versus like rage toward others. Um, the fourth is authority versus subversion. I think you were talking about this a little bit with India. Um, mm -hmm. But this includes virtues like leadership versus leadership and following, um, deference to authority, respect for tradition. It helps us build relationships within hierarchical structures. And so this would be characteristic emotions like fear and respect. The fifth one is sanctity versus degradation. And this is um, kind of the virtue of striving to live in an elevated, less carnal, more noble way. And it can also help us actually with things like cleanliness to avoid contaminants and the emo it's related to the emotion of disgust. And then finally, the sixth one that they came up with a bit later after kind of trying to unpack some of this was the, um, was liberty versus oppression. So it has, this has to do with um, resentment and reactive reactants that people feel toward those who dominate or restrict their freedom. So like reacting to oppression and wanting all people to be free. Yeah. So this is sort of the, the, uh, a central framework in uh, Jonathan Haidt's research on morality and what he's done um, with, in looking at these six uh, moral foundations is um, to examine the differences between political parties in how much um, individuals sort of uh, subscribe to these different moral foundations. What's what's so interesting is that there's some really um, reliable results that he's come out with uh, in terms of how individuals from different political parties uh, affiliate with the different moral foundations. So for example, um, both groups care uh, very deeply about liberty and oppression, but they care differently. Um, so for example, um, you know, both uh, conservatives and liberals care very deeply about having freedom and autonomy, but um, the freedom and autonomy might look different. It might look uh, more like, uh, you know, not having the government involved with your uh, financial uh, action on the conservative side, and it might have to do with, you know, freedom to make social choices like who to marry or whether or not you can have an abortion on the liberal side. So they both care about that moral foundation, but differently. Um, yeah, kind of say that, um, for instance, care and harm, that liberals tend to emphasize that particular domain more. Um, for instance, they're more disturbed by images of violence and suffering, um, but that they care less than conservatives about some other ones, like loyalty and betrayal, um, authority and subversion, subversion and sanctity versus degradation. Um, I found that sanctity versus degradation one to be interesting um, that we, so you think of religious conservatives, particularly being concerned with things like bodily purity and sexual purity. 
Um, but interestingly, liberals have kind of their own version of the sanctity morality. If you think of it, about it in terms of things like avoiding toxins, environmental toxins, um, eating healthy foods, um, preserving the environment and that kind of thing, um, that that might be like a slightly different version of the same um, construct. So I thought that was sort of fascinating. Um, but yeah, they're, they sort of have different they relied on different one foundations and they kind of have some that they might care more or less about. And even within those constructs, they think about them in different ways. Um, so one example I think that we could use that's related to a recent sort of current, a recent issue in, in US politics is the NFL players who were kneeling during the national anthem. And this is sort of a, has been a really big controversy um, and they, they were doing this to bring awareness to racial oppression in the US. And I think that what's interesting about this example is that both sides of the argument are, they have morality at play. I think people who think that the kneeling should not be allowed are really tied to this value of loyalty and patriotism. Um, and not to honor that feels like a major betrayal. It feels wrong. It feels like almost like the person is a traitor to this national loyalty. Um, but people on the other side, people who support the kneeling, don't really think that the actual act of kneeling down in front of a patriotic symbol is that important. It's just not that strong of a moral issue. Um, but instead, they care more about speaking out against racial oppression. So there's some care moral going on in there. Um, and just simply not as important, this value of loyalty and patriotism. And what's interesting, if you read the way that this is presented, both sides really believe that they're right and have a really hard time understanding the other side's point of view. Yeah. So really attaching yourself to, you know, particular um, uh, pieces of morality or, or particular moral foundations and, and sort of, you know, being in a position to think that those are the most important moral foundations might really prevent you from seeing the value of other moral foundations. And, and I think that a part of teasing this out and making it explicit can help us as individuals to understand that, you know, while we may sort of value care and do no harm most highly, that there, there might be, you know, some value to be had even in the moral foundations that we don't hold as tightly to, and that, you know, we can perhaps even develop some respect for individuals that um, have uh, more uh, of a tie to, to moral foundations that we, that aren't as central for us. Um, another piece that I think is so critical about this line of research is, is this interesting um, way that liberals really attach themselves to fewer of the moral foundations than conservatives do. And so Haidt asked this really interesting question about whether the fact of leaning on just a few of the foundations, um, two or three versus all five or six, uh, sometimes he includes the liberty oppression one and sometimes he, he doesn't. Um, so in other words, that um, liberals sort of attach themselves to fewer of the moral foundations than conservatives do. And that that might be one of the reasons that conservatives or Republicans um, do better in elections than uh, than liberals or Democrats do. He also suggests that Republicans are more in touch uh, with the moral foundations in the way that they campaign or engage in sort of um, uh, outreach. So they use slogans and speeches that really elicit a gut response. So um, 
you know, and, and um, he sort of goes through these recent historical examples that some Republicans who are not necessarily as skillful at invoking emotions, such as George W. Bush, were um, sort of coincidentally pitted against more cool cerebral Democrats, um, and that generally we have um, sort of put Democrats um, who are more cerebral and cool at the front uh, running uh, for high offices like uh, Michael Dukakis and Al Gore and John Kerry and Hillary Clinton. And the individuals who can charm and invoke an emotional reaction on the Democratic side, like Bill Clinton and Obama, were much more successful than the more cerebral, um, sort of thoughtful, cool uh, candidates. Right. And I think all those candidates from the, the cool cerebral ones, the main complaint was that people, they weren't sort of likable or people didn't have this strong affinity toward them, which is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's an interesting tie to, to think about the way that use of these moral foundations can make us more or less likable because we sort of elicit mm-hmm. this strong emotional reaction. We sort of engage people. We, we activate them when we connect on that moral level, which is a real important part of why morality exists. This is sort of the, the sort of uh, initial argument for why morality exists is that it helps us be more cohesive as a group. And so if we're responding to people who are activating our morality in a positive way, then that sort of functionally helps us to feel more tied to them and more engaged with them. And so, um, you know, if in fact Republicans have more generally been successful, not only with invoking that emotional reaction um, by use of, you know, strategic slogans and campaign strategies, but they're also more successful because they're making use of more of the moral foundations, you know, a greater number of the moral foundations, and that might be a part of why they're more successful. And so in terms of political strategy, it's sort of an interesting um, just notion to think about the ways that candidates can be more and less successful. Another area that he goes into um, that in this book that Haidt goes into in his book is this concept that he says morality binds and blinds. And he talks about how we are group oriented beings and we're kind of bound to our group or um, whether it's a group of origin or the group that we choose to, to end up with in a way that kind of can sometimes obscure our independence of thought and action. So on the one hand, we're selfish creatures and we want to kind of take care of ourselves, but we're also, he calls it groupish. And he talks about how our groupishness kind of evolved out of a shared intentionality. So our ability to kind of share mental representations with each other, um, to, you know, use language and storytelling, this kind of binds us together in groups. And actually there's another book that coincidentally we both have been reading, um, Yuval Help me out. How do I pronounce this? I think it's Yuval Harari. Yuval Harari. He has a book called Sapiens and and kind of writes it this in great detail. If anyone happens to be interested in that, it's an interesting book about how how groups kind of developed and this contributed to our biological success. Um, But anyway, Haidt argues that natural selection can occur both at the individual and the group level. And that there's pressure for groups to be more cohesive internally and to kind of exclude traitors or competitors forcefully to kind of, you know, protect our group. 
And he also writes that humans are an ultra social species, that, that we humans can live in very large groups that have kind of an internal structure that can benefit from dividing labor. Um, and, you know, I was actually listening to this on an audio book when I was driving around and like looking around and I was thinking, wow, I couldn't build myself a house. <laughs> I could, you know, there are things I do. I, you know, I have a job and I, you know, take care of my children and whatnot, but I can't do a lot of things that I rely on other people in my group to do. Um, and there are a lot of animal species that are social, but very few that are ultra social in this way. Um, bees are an example. Bees kind of do this. Bee behavior turns out to be super fascinating. And as a quick side note, our co-host Diana has talked <laughs> on previous episodes about how she does beekeeping, which I think is really interesting. But yeah, so we as humans have really kind of, you know, evolved to live in this kind of ultra social group type situation. Yeah. And I, I think that, you know, one of the really cool things is that we we as humans have both parts uh, of, you know, selfishness and groupishness available to us. And we can sort of switch from one to the other. And sometimes we can even observe ourselves switching from one to the other. I mean, when I was in college, I, I rode, um, I was a part of a crew team and I just remember sort of how painful it was. But um, on the other side, you know, when the boat was moving in unison and you could kind of hear the click of the oars and you could feel the boat lift, even though your individual body was in pain during a race and you were pushing yourself as hard as you could go, there was something about being part of that group, a part of that boat that was moving in as one, as one machinery with each body sort of as a small part of it that just kind of lifted you up and it made the pain sort of secondary to this amazing experience of being a part of something that was much larger than yourself. And so I think that, you know, those kinds of experiences when we can access them really demonstrate to us the way that we have these two levels of being. And I think when it comes to political and religious groupings, we can kind of see that in action, that when we become a part of a group, when we sort of have a cause or um, a belief system that exists kind of outside of ourselves and we become a part of it in this very fundamental way, that there's something that's so intoxicating about that and that really can compel us and propel us to, to act very strongly um, for our group and against an out-group. Um, and um, so, so I think that that's an important piece of this morality, that it's not just individual morality that's driven by selfish desires, but that it, it really is um, a part of being a group and that can really just intensify some of those moral beliefs. So in the end um, of all this kind of really interesting ideas, he hyped basically comes up with his final definition of a moral system. And it's funny because you're reading the book and he doesn't actually give you a definition until you're like three quarters of the way through the book or maybe yeah. even more than that. Um, but what he, he says is this, this is a quote, moral systems are interlocking sets of values, virtues, norms, practices, identities, institutions, technologies, and evolved psychological mechanisms that work together to suppress or regulate self-interest and make cooperative societies possible. So he kind of ties all of this together into this rather complex definition of moral systems. 
Um, so yeah, so it's not a simple thing really. And, and that makes it, I think, understandable of how we end up with very different points of view and still everyone for the most part, really kind of trying to do the right thing. I think that that's such an important point that I think that's such an important point to, to, to just emphasize that, you know, what the part of the conclusion is that I think is so critical is that people have a vision that for them is, you know, symbolizes the right way to do the right thing. And that when we can give credit to that positive intentionality as sort of a starting point, that even if we don't agree with an and a, a different perspective or an opposing side that we can engage in far more respectful conversation if we if we simply start from that belief that that you know everyone has good intention even if the intention looks different or emphasizes things that we don't agree with yeah i think that's really important and that that kind of leads to this question that we wanted to end with for this episode which is how can we use this to work together better you know, as kind of a society and a world and humanity, like how can we understand each other? Um, so I'll quickly digress into a couple studies about differences between liberals and conservatives and how they understand each other. Um, there's just, just briefly, there's, there's an area of political psychology research that has uncovered some sort of interesting personality differences between people who identify themselves as liberals and versus conservatives. Um, that mostly have to do with openness to experience and sensation seeking, which liberals tend to be higher on, and then the need for sort of order, structure, kind of maintaining the status quo, and that's something that conservatives tend to be a bit higher on. And they suggest that there's some kind of both, there's, there's a little bit of a heritability to this, that there seems to be some kind of genetic underpinning for these traits. Um, but there's, you know, some kind of some general differences, but that this is part of what can make it hard to understand each other. And like another kind of connected, I think, interesting line of research was that they had participants fill out a moral foundations questionnaire looking at these different moral areas and guessing how the typical person on the other side of politics was would respond. So they asked liberal people who identify as liberal, what the typical conservative would say. And they asked conservative people what the typical liberal would say. And what they found, interestingly, is that moderates and conservatives tended to be more accurate. And those who described themselves as very liberal were actually the least accurate. And especially on the care and fairness foundations, they kind of assumed that conservatives would not care very much about that. They, they kind of underestimated how much conservatives would care about fairness and care. Um, so this is how we get to the sense of morality blind that, that Haidt writes about, which is that we just, sometimes we just can't, we have a really hard time understanding the other person's point of view. Right, right. I mean, we think we, we have a hard time understanding them and sort of giving them positive credit uh, um, and even understanding sort of what differences um, exist in, in sort of an accurate way. Um, and so I think a lot of this book really talks about helping, really helps us to understand between groups, uh, one another sort of motivations and values more accurately. Another thing that 
I was really left with, and and Haidt goes into this pretty explicitly, is the way that liberalism and conservatism um, can really support and balance each other. Um, and I think, um, you know, it, it's it's a really uh, useful thing in the way that they are they can be seen as complements to one another. So, liberalism may be more likely to bring about freedom and equal opportunity, but it may do so at a cost of changing things too quickly and reducing the availability of the kinds of interlocking values and norms and practices that might help a society to most effectively cooperate and flourish. Um, so. For example, you know, liberals may risk sacrificing the hives to help some of the bees. Um, and on the other hand, conservatives are more likely to preserve moral capital, to, to preserve stability, to preserve traditions. But they may do so at a cost of overlooking classes of victims of oppression or limiting powerful elite interests or failing to make updates that might be necessary or at the very least beneficial. And so if we can kind of see the differences in a more useful light where the balance of liberalism and conservatism really help one another out and, and are nice complements to one another, that can sort of help us move from a place of sort of fighting to win to a place of appreciating the way that the balance exists between the two. Um, and Haidt quotes Bertrand Russell um, who's a philosopher, and, and I really just like this quote. And the quote is that every community is exposed to two opposite dangers, ossification through too much discipline and reverence for tradition on the one hand, and on the other hand, dissolution or subjection to foreign conquest through the growth of an individualism and personal independence that makes cooperation impossible. So I think that quote really does emphasize the way that we can sort of see the yin and the yang of liberalism and conservatism in, in a very sort of harmonious and complementary way. Yeah. And I think in politics nowadays, more and more, we're seeing that instead of looking at that balance and that yin and yang, people really, it's this war to win. You know, people won't compromise. It's considered to be like a betrayal of the cause or something like that. Yeah. And the more we dig into that, the more, the more further away we get from each other. And really instead, what we need to move away from this, this divide, what we need is more open dialogue to have more conversations, even starting with non-political ones with people who we don't agree with to just bond in a different way. Um, you know, for example, one thing in the book, he talks about how legislators used to move to Washington, D.C. with their families, and they would like have baseball games and picnics together. And so they knew each other as people. And so they would cross the aisle better. And now they don't do that. They come to work Monday and they leave Thursday and they they don't hang out. And so they don't hang out with the other side. And so they don't have this kind of bond. Um, but another an example of kind of doing it right is the Supreme Court justices, Ginsburg and Scalia, who are very different politically. I mean, about as different as you can get. And they would go to the opera together. They were actually good friends and they had a lot of respect for each other. So that's more like what we should be aiming for. And maybe having people know each other on a personal level will help understanding and, and working together. 
Yeah, and I love that suggestion of sort of it doesn't have to start with a friendship that's based on political similarities or differences, but it can start with a friendship or at least uh, the development of some kind of relationship that that doesn't have that is sort of based on something that is outside of where the differences exist, and then but use that as an avenue to develop an appreciation or an affection or some admiration for the other person. Um, which gets us to one of the other um, suggestions uh, for moving away from this more politically contentious climate, which is to focus on developing an interest in understanding the other group versus proving them wrong. So whereas we might sort of come at a conversation or an issue with the intention of showing why we are right and the other group is, is wrong, we can enter into it with sort of an open curiosity. Like, how did that other party arrive at the conclusion that this is the right way to do things or that this should be the appropriate goal? Um, because, you know, for me, that doesn't make sense. So I'm kind of curious um, and to sort of have a remove judgment as much as you can um, in, in that open curiosity and just be willing to, to hear out um, and, and try to develop an understanding for how somebody could see things so differently. And interestingly, this is a strategy I use all the time in couples therapy um, that I, I very explicitly encourage um, partners to sort of uh, come at one another with, with an open curiosity. Oh, you know, I really didn't see that interaction that way at all. Help me to understand how you saw me as being, um, you know, rigid and controlling because I thought I was just trying to help, help you and support you. And so starting the conversation that way is a lot more productive than saying, um, no, you're dead wrong. And I did it exactly right. And you just interpreted it in your selfish, um, you know, self, uh, aggrandizing way, right? That's, that conversation is not going to get very far. So the open curiosity yeah. perspective can be really useful. I think it's like we as a nation need couples therapy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, and, you know, if you go back to that metaphor that Height uses of the writer and the elephant, you know, we're, we kind of said this earlier, but it doesn't do much good to kind of argue and try to, to change the viewpoint at that sort of argumentative informational level. We're just bad at that. We're bad at listening to evidence that goes against our beliefs. And when discuss when discussions are hostile, we really don't change. We dig in deeper. And so instead right. really, kind of going back to that idea of establishing trust, establishing, you know, respect, listening, warmth, openness. And if we do that and the other person do that, does that, we might get somewhere better. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's this sort of basic idea of, you know, to open your mind, you first need to open your heart. And it's not the case that you need to agree with the opposing group or, or even, you know, be dramatically influenced by them, but it can really be helpful to appreciate the way that an opposing view might have complementary value to your view. Well, I think that this, this even preparing the content for this episode has been helpful to me. You know, not, like I said, it's not entirely pleasant, but I think that it has actually kind of helped me think about things in a different way. Just as I've been reading it, I've been like paying attention to the news in a slightly different way and thinking about how I could maybe do better. Um, and so I, my hope is that, that this work by height, I know he's really on a mission to kind of shape this conversation. And um, I, I hope that people will find it interesting who've listened to the episode. 
Yeah, we hope that it um, opens people's minds and creates more interest. And we'll um, link to some of the information and um, studies and questionnaires that we discussed. Um, but please let us know if um, any thoughts or, or, or uh, ideas came up. Um, you can email us or um, respond to us on Facebook or Twitter uh, and, and let us know your thoughts. Yeah, and thank you, Yael. This was a really like thought-provoking episode, and I appreciate talking to you about it. Yeah, thanks, Debbie. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes. You can also find us at www.offtheclockpsych.com. That's offtheclockpsych.com. Music by John Goo and Susie Stevens.